Hello and welcome to the Long Game Podcast. I'm your host, Mehdi Yakubi, and this is the Long Game Podcast. In each episode, we explore the ideas, technologies, and businesses that will help us overcome the challenges of our time. The episodes feature long-form conversations with tech industry leaders, scientists, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. Some guests will be well-known, others will be soon, but they all share a profound similarity. They have demonstrated unusual insight and see today's challenges with a unique lens. When I'm not recording podcasts, I'm building Lifetizer, a product to help people optimize their blood glucose levels for better health, improved energy levels, and optimize longevity. And I sent a weekly email newsletter called The Long Game. I hope you enjoy the show. Muya, welcome to The Long Game. I am very excited to have you today on the on the podcast because I am so excited about what you're currently doing in, in Africa, especially in terms of building a new city. That's a pretty amazing project, and I really cannot wait to, uh, to learn more about that. So I was thinking maybe to begin with, could you tell us a little bit your story and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. Um, it's a pleasure. I've been watching from the silence for a while, so um, it, it's great to finally be on this podcast. Um, regarding me, I, I was born in Zambia. I uh, lived a significant part of my life here. I went to primary and nursery school here. Uh, lived in Swaziland, uh, which is now called Eswatini. Eswatini. I lived there for about two years. Uh, did primary school there also. Uh, my dad was working for the IMF at the time, and he was stationed there. Um, then came back to Zambia and. I uh, did my secondary school here, um, at a British uh, boarding school here, and then went to the UK, uh, did my BA in finance there, and then my uh, master's in uh, international business there as well, um, and worked for a year at a tech startup where I covered BD. Uh, so I was doing business development, um, and they built this app, which was actually pretty cool. It's a It was, rather, a... Uh, an app for, for shopping. So it was a map on your iPhone where, you know, as you walked down the streets of London, you could see where all the flash sales and, and discounts were happening. And you could sort of like toggle down to the uh, individual uh, SKU. So you could see, you know, by brand, by type, by specific SKU. Um, so my job was to recruit merchants. I did that for about a year and then uh, came back to Zambia. Um, worked for a fund management business here. Um, they run pension fund money, and I covered research basically, and that, that involved looking at equities, looked at real estate, um, and bonds. And uh, whilst doing that, I was actively thinking about what next. Um, so I remember in the interview for the job, as an example, uh, telling my my would be boss that. I wanted to work for only two years, um, learn as much as I could, and then eventually um, become an entrepreneur. And I think they thought I was kidding, um, but I did exactly that. So um, I I used the opportunity to learn as much as I could about real estate and uh, then started Nkwashi. 
That's amazing. There is a question actually that that that, that I'm that I have and I wanted to to ask you because you know uh, you're you're an African. I'm also from uh, from Africa, from uh, from Morocco. And what I see is that a lot of people from Africa, when they go to study abroad, there is this question about coming back or staying in Europe or in the US. So how did you um, how did you address this this question? Basically, what what led you to uh, to go back to Zambia? There's two things. Um, so I was working this job at this startup and the, the COO at the startup was also an advisor on a startup I was building. So he, he knew I was working on a, on a side project and he was advising me on that. Um, and we ended up raising some angel money. So we raised about $30,000. And so, uh, you know, I, I started working on that project. Eventually, I decided to focus almost full-time on that. So I, I basically went from being full-time on the BD um, to being part-time on the BD and then looking at the startup uh, full-time. And we built a prototype and it was actually a pretty cool uh, product, um, but we weren't able to raise enough money to actually start marketing the app and Um, so like building users uh, and consequently we're able to raise follow-on angel financing uh, or a series A um, and so we basically run the course on our on our liquidity and then I had to ask myself okay do I start looking for another full-time job do I go back to this company where I was working and do this full-time or do I go back to Zambia And, you know, the more I thought about it, and my, my wife also had a full-time job at the time. And, you know, we, um, we basically made the decision that it made more sense to come back to Zambia. Um, and the reason was we felt like the UK where we were living was a fairly, you know, it is a well-developed country by almost every single metric. And one's ability to contribute to development there is very minimal and for you to sort of like be a, a a really impactful contributor to to progress there you have to be like one in you know billions of people potentially uh, as opposed to what we saw as an opportunity in zambia where because it's not as well developed uh, in, in very material ways uh, ability to contribute there Uh, and afford everybody else an impact was much higher. Uh, and, and so it, it made more sense to just uh, go to Zambia. Uh, it, you know, the way people sometimes look at this is you can either be a, a, a big fish in a small pond or a, um, a big fish in a big pond. Um, but if you're a big fish, yeah. pond, chances are, you know, there's bigger fish than you. So you're actually a small fish in the big pond. Um, and we just felt like at that particular point in our lives, given everything that we wanted to learn and, and you know, contribute, it made more sense to just do all those things in Zambia. Yeah. 
totally makes sense. So let's let's explore a little bit more uh, in Kwashi. Basically, uh, you are building a city in uh, in Zambia. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, where the, the the idea came from? Because it's it's relatively new as an idea to uh, to to build new cities instead of, for example, building um, building a project uh, in 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 an existing city. So what led to uh, to this project? So uh, while I was working as an analyst, I had seen um, data that basically suggested that the country was in a very big um, infrastructure deficit. Uh, it was visible. You could see um, like, you know, the, the roads were full of traffic. Um, there's construction everywhere. Um, you know, people trying to catch up and provide all the various types of infrastructure that society needs to function. So you're seeing a lot more shopping malls, you're seeing a lot more homes being built, a lot more office buildings, you're seeing um, water and sanitation infrastructure going out. And so it seemed like there was a, a huge opportunity there. Uh, and I wanted to figure out a way to participate in that. Um, the, the challenge was, you know, access to land. And at the same time, um, I, I, you know, my... My family was um, sort of like in the process of winding down a farming operation that we had owned um, in the periphery of Lusaka, which is Zambia's capital. And I, I thought that there was an opportunity there to convert this farm, this ranch, into a mixed-use real estate development of some sorts. Uh, at the time, it wasn't a very well-developed idea, but it was just this concept that it made sense to turn this asset which was being used for agricultural uh, production into a, a real estate play because that would be the highest and best use of the land in terms of um, monetization potential. And we started with a fairly simple prototype. So we took 400 acres of the land available to us, uh, subdivided that into five acre plots, and we started to market those. Now, what happened is because we used an estate agent, those plots weren't immediately sold. And, you know, over the course of a year, nothing happened. So there was no transacting. And so we started asking ourselves whether we were wrong about the extent of the demand available. And we didn't want to make any firm conclusions, uh, you know, because we felt like we didn't have enough information, um, though, of course, we we're concerned about what we we're seeing. So what we did is decided to take on the marketing and sales function ourselves. And we started marketing the land using newspaper ads, like pretty big newspaper ads. And we also started offering payment plans on the land. And we went from a year with no transactions to three months selling out. Uh, and so then it became clear that um, adding a sense of... Uh, adding a financial product to the land offering was a means of expanding potential to sell. And we then used the resources from that to basically master plan the rest of the city. So, you know, what, what type of city would it be? Uh, what would the economy be anchored on? Um, how do we deal with wastewater disposal and solid waste disposal and, uh, energy and all those things. So we did all the studies um, and we started developing the, uh, the the sort of like framework to execute. And uh, once we got all the approvals from the state, we started marketing 
the land off plan, selling on payment plans, uh, and the cash flows from those sales um, basically financed all the infrastructure we've been building and uh, the entire organization. That's fantastic. I want to ask you what's basically the difference between uh, a city like Nukwashi and uh, a real estate project. So in, in what way the fact that it's a charter city differs from just a real estate uh, project? What are basically the main differences? So there, there are a few differences. Um, so there's what I'll call product-specific differences and there's also governance-level um, or economic differences. So on the product-specific differences, typically what you'll find is um, you do get mixed-use developments in real estate. So if, as an example, you have in New York a development called Hudson Yards. Um, and sometimes it's called a city within a city, but it, it's not big enough for that, But because it's, I think, on 30 acres of land. Um, but it's pretty massive. It's a $20 billion project. Um, it's mixed use in the sense that they've got office, retail, and uh, multifamily real estate all in one, right? So those are all the components that you typically find in a city. Uh, the difference is they are a pure play sales or leasing model, right? So they're selling real estate and they're leasing real estate. And that's all they're ever going to do there, right? Whereas with a like a, a city project, what you're doing is significantly more uh, expansive because you also have to provide municipal level services, which in Hudson Yard's case, the municipal authority in New York would be providing. In our case, we have to build those from scratch. So we're having to build um, the water utility, we're having to build the electricity utility, we're having to build all the roads and the streets, we're having to build a park. Uh, so all those type of things are being built and will be operated by us. In addition to that, we also have to provide the types of other, uh, so like social services that a, like a municipal authority would typically provide. So things like a fire service, things like security, um, things like education, things like healthcare. We either have to directly provide those or subcontract those things to third parties. But either way, we are the coordinating actor, um, which is, again, what a, a traditional city authority would be doing, uh, except in this instance, it's a private actor that's doing all these things. And so what this creates is this very like mixed model um, cash flow profile where you are making money from leasing and from sales of land, but you're also making money from utility provision. So the provision of power, provision of water services, provision of uh, you know, like municipal level services in general. So uh, it's much more of a diversified income um, than one would get from a traditional real estate play. And then on the governance side, this largely depends on the type of city development one is building. So if you're building a true charter city, then typically what would happen is a government would give you a charter, right, which basically gives you semi-autonomous um, powers to govern the city. So you can set up certain laws within the city um, that only apply there. Um, so those will typically be things in civil or commercial law whereas criminal law would remain within the jurisdiction of the nation state. Um, and, you know, you, you can get models on that 
where it can be like a strong charter city, which is very autonomous, similar to how Hong Kong previously was. Um, or you could get a weak charter city where it's much more like a special economic zone um, with some incentives from the state to sort of facilitate uh, business development within the city. Um, and sometimes you can have like none of that status, but still operate as a city. There is something quite clear in, in Africa is that a lot of cities are having relatively um, some troubles in terms of uh, developing fast enough with the growing urbanization. And it's not going to stop anytime soon. So it seems also that charter cities could play a major role in helping Africa develop faster and, and uh, progress. So, so how do you think that charter cities are going to be specifically uh, helpful in the case of Africa? The primary way in which charter cities will be a driver of economic advancement is that they will be better at providing the things that people want, right? Because you tend to have a lot of governance failures in traditional cities. I'll, I'll give you an example of what I've seen in a few African countries, uh, including here in, in Zambia. So a, a city authority has got the ability to tax its residents and is therefore then mandated to uh, collect property taxes and then use those taxes to do things like build roads and streets and things of that other sort. Um, but their ability to actually tax the people is typically very low. And so like city taxation as a percentage of GDP in Africa is lower than it is uh, in most places in the world. Uh, and because they aren't able to actually follow through on the taxes, they aren't able to follow through on the provision of municipal services and the central government typically then ends up having to do those things. And it creates this cycle where no one then trusts the, the city government to do the things that it says it's supposed to be doing. And because they don't trust it to do those things, they don't pay their taxes to it. Uh, and therefore it remains um, low capacity. The differences with private cities are that they are highly incentivized to do all those things, right? A private city operator will ensure that everybody who is living within this jurisdiction is paying whatever they owe it. Uh, and because of that, it is incentivized to provide the services that it owes its residents, because if it doesn't do that, they will leave. Um, and it you know, ultimately has to compete with other city developers for residents. So there's a lot more of an incentive alignment uh, with private cities and there is with public ones because in public cities, politicians uh, in the context of Africa, you know, they, they can receive income from non-city business. So you often find that they, they, they'll potentially be getting bribes um, or will run monopolies on very specific types of city functions, which ordinarily would be things that the city authority should be itself doing. Um, but then them and their patrons end up uh, receiving the incomes instead of the city authority. And that obviously undermines um, the city's ability to do its job. Um, that is less likely with a private situation. And, and so because of all those things, a private city then is also optimized, or better, better suited rather, to be an aggressive pursuer of anchor tenants Right? So these will be businesses who can provide employment within its uh, jurisdiction. Um, and, and so they're incentivized to help build the national economy by building 
uh, local businesses. There is another um, there is another question that that I wanted to ask you, especially in the in the in the case of of building charter cities, which is that basically you see that some charter cities seem to be more successful than uh, than, than others. And um, basically, my question is, how do you make sure that the city that you're building is going to uh, be suited for the new inhabitants? Like, how do you make sure that, culturally speaking, you're building something that's going to resonate with the future inhabitants and that you're not going to end up with uh, a big city with no one that wants to, uh, to live inside of it? I think there are a couple things that uh, one needs to do. So one is a, sort of like a financial plan, you know, so you have to ensure that the, the economics of the city in terms of the cost of living there, so buying property there, uh, as an example, are within the means of your target market, right? So you can't be selling at a premium to people who can't afford that if that's your target market. Um, you have to reflect what people's pockets uh, can accommodate. The second thing is you have to be able to um, reflect the the context that you're in. So if we're in Kenya, as an example, or in South Africa, chances are we wouldn't have to provide our buyers with payment plans because they'll be able to get mortgages from a bank uh, or a building society. In Zambia, you can do those things, but the cost of credit is fairly high. And so that becomes a very meaningful restriction. So instead, what we do is we offer the, the would-be resident a payment plan on the land And so they're able to purchase it on terms that they can afford. And because we've owned the land for a significant period of time, our IRR is not particularly affected by this. And in any case, um, in our view, the biggest source of income for a city project isn't actually going to be the real estate side, but rather it's going to be the income taxation side. So um, being able to place people into jobs where you can effectively get a percentage of their earnings the way Uber does, as an example, as a market maker, and create a cash flow. And that's a, a pretty big source of revenue um, in that it's it could be potentially uh, way greater than the land value itself. And so one has to build out the infrastructure to allow for things of that sort. Uh, the other thing that a, a city developer has to do to sort of like prevent... Um, a city from being uh, a, a ghost town effectively is you have to cite it accordingly. If you're going to build it far from anything, you, you have to have an anchor industry or, or either that you create yourself or that you can attract to the city to facilitate for people to move there. Um, without that, it's definitely going to be empty. So I think it's a multi-strategy. When you look at the world today, what do you think are the most successful charter cities? I think the most successful city projects in the world uh, would be, I, I think the one that excites me most is one like Irvine in California, um, basically built by a private developer over the last 50 years. It's a very uh, successful project. Um, Columbia in, in Maryland is another example of a successful city project. Um, Canary Wharf is a smaller uh, project in the sense that it's not on a significantly massive amount of land, but it's been successful and they've been able to get really success, like big anchor 
tenants there. So Citibank is there, or the Citigroup is there, HSBC is there, JP Morgan is in there, Barclays is in there, KPMG is in there, um, and many more. So I think from, from the context of building out an economy, that's been um, a success. Um, and there are many others. So there's examples in, in places like uh, South Korea, uh, places like uh, in China where private developments, which are city size, have also been. And on the opposite side, what are the least successful charter cities and, and what can we learn from them? What are some cities that didn't manage to get where they wanted to be? I think it's still too early in the space to definitively call any of these projects um, you know, forever failures, so to say. Um, but there are city projects which haven't taken off as they were planned. So King Abdullah City in Saudi Arabia is an example of one which um, hasn't really played out the way people expected. Um, there's, a, there's a new capital city for, um, in Egypt that was planned, and I don't think it's played out the way it was expected. Um, But again, you know, those could be turned around in the future. So there is another thread that I want to, uh, to explore with you, which is uh, Wakanda, basically, which is a, a fictional country appearing in American comics. And it seems to be a huge inspiration for you. Uh, could you tell me a little bit more about why it's uh, such an inspiration for, for your work? Yeah, sure. So, you know, in, in contemporary, um, so like media and thought over the last hundred or so years, Africa has almost always been shown as this backwards, primitive place. Um, if you look at all the sort of like racist cartoons from the 40s and 50s in the US, um, they're, they're almost always universally um, depicted that. Uh, if you look at what people believed about even ancient Egypt as an example, um, up until fairly recently, it was always assumed that that wasn't a true African society. I mean, I mean, um, it, it definitely was a Middle Eastern society in many regards, but it doesn't change the fact that it was also an African one. But it was never really accepted as one um, by, um, by people for a long time, you know? And it's only fairly recently where that acceptance has, has become the norm versus the exception. And, and so basically what that does to a society is that it takes away a sense of worth and dignity. You know, if that is the narrative and story around people. Uh, I remember reading an article about uh, a civilization in Southern Africa called um, Great Zimbabwe. And so it was a city which was built in what is now Zimbabwe. Um, and for a long time, um, people believed that it wasn't built by an African society because they're like, oh, Africans aren't civilized enough to build uh, a culture like that, despite the fact that you have you know, more pyramids in Sudan, as an example, than you do in, in Egypt. Um, or you had you know, the likes of Aksum or Ido, in, um, you know, respectively in Ethiopia and, and Nigeria. And, and so Wakanda represents the antithesis of that, where instead of Africa being painted as this backwater, slow, primitive place. It is the opposite of that. It's this technologically advanced um, society with uh, a lot of agency and self-belief, right? And that is a, a narrative which was completely absent 
for the longest time. And I believe that's one of the reasons why that movie was so successful because uh, everyone, including people who, weren't, who are not from Africa, was excited to see this optimistic vision of Africa, right? And what that then does is that it allows people to have a sense of worth. It allows, allows people to, have a, to build a sense of identity you know, uh, based on self-belief. Um, and I thought that was an incredibly powerful story for those reasons. It is, definitely. So how do we build uh, Wakanda? You have uh, a very good uh, paper uh, on the topic, uh, talking about Pan-African uh, culture. Uh, could you extend a little bit on, on the topic? Sure. So our, our view is that, you know, Wakanda paints this picture that one of the reasons why, sorry, the story of Wakanda paints the picture that one of the reasons why it's so successful is because of vibranium, which is this really rare mineral um, available only in Wakanda, which is the equivalent of, say, oil in, in the Gulf. And we take the view that actually what makes Wakanda special isn't so much the vibranium, it's how the people use the vibranium. So they are what is special. Their stewardship of the vibranium is special because they could have just sold it to everyone and just forgotten. Um, you know, but instead they take a very cautious, stewardship-focused view, um, building out a civilization um, that is self-reliant, which is un, you know not too dissimilar to what's happened again in the likes of say uh, Qatar or um, the UAE, right? Where these societies understood that look, the oil is here, that's great, but if we don't steward it properly, if we waste the resource that we have, this endowment will just dissipate and we'll be back to where we were which is poor. Um, and so our view is that Africa needs to do the same thing, um, but that starts with investing in your own people. It starts with the people being seen as the resource that must be developed. Um, and so the paper that we wrote, which is Kilimanjaro, takes the view that cities are an incredibly powerful way of doing that, but on their own aren't nearly enough. What you have to pair them with is institutions that allow for people who are talented to gain the access to skills that could change their lives. So taking a person who's really smart um, but comes from a potentially like disadvantaged background, teaching them how to code, teaching them how to be a civil engineer, an architect, or uh, a digital designer, and then finding global remote jobs for these people where they can work for any global organization but from Africa, right? So they don't have to leave the continent for these jobs. Um, and they can earn that hard currency, they can earn um, and then spend and invest right here at home. Um, so that all the benefits that accrue from uh, that heightened earning potential, uh, you know, don't dissipate into the rest of the world, but rather are accumulated in their local economy. And, and that's the basic premise of the paper. That would be definitely a beautiful thing for, for Africa. Now the question is, uh, how do we get there? Do you think that it's more something to do on a state level or do we need kind of a union between African countries to foster really this pan-African culture? Because right now it doesn't seem that we have such uh, an incredible pan-African culture. I mean, correct me if, uh, if, if you think that we already have, but how, how do you think uh, we can get there? I think I agree with you that we don't have it right now. 
Um, and I mean, ideally, yes, it's something that would be done at a state level, um, but the incentives for that just don't exist right now, at least. And so it's, you know, because of that, either we just wait or it never happens potentially. And if you look at the way Africa's population is growing right now, it's at you know, 1.4 billion people and it's likely to end up being 3 billion by 2050 and then potentially 5 um, to 6 billion by 2100. Um, we don't really have a lot of time to sort of like to wait and see. Uh, our view is that the private sector does have the tools and resources to deal with this on its own. Uh, so if, whilst Africa doesn't have a Pan-African identity, what we're seeing is a greater African awareness, a Pan-African awareness that is starting to emerge. So as an example, uh, two years ago almost, I was in Singapore and I was at a rooftop lounge and, uh, you know, basically relaxing for a bit uh, after a day and Burner Boy starts playing, right? And I'm like, well, that's amazing. This is some Nigerian artist who is being played by a Singaporean uh, DJ in this um, hotel rooftop bar, you know. For me, that was incredible. And then you go to South Africa and you hear Nigerian music being played. You go to Kenya and you hear South African music being played. And so South African, Nigerian, um, and, and you know, like African content in general is increasingly being consumed both globally and locally here in Africa in a way that's creating the beginnings of a Pan-African identity of sorts, like a meta identity. So this is not like a local identity, it's more of a meta identity. We still have a lot of barriers, right? So like language is an example. So you've got Francophone Africa, you've got Lusophone Africa, you've got Anglo-Africa. And those those barriers, are, you know, make this a lot harder than it otherwise could be. Um, but on the flip side, it's still happening, right? And uh, so I, I think that shows that private institution, private distribution of technology, media, uh, content and, and product does create a sense of shared identity on some level. We're also seeing that businesses have emerged focused on solving problems in this space, but in a sort of like siloed approach. So you've got code academies, which are looking at training African uh, developers and placing them into global jobs. Um, so you've had the likes of Andela doing that to some extent. You've had the likes of Microverse currently doing that. You've had people like Lambda School running experiments in this space, where they're hiring, uh, whether they're providing these skills to people and then putting them into jobs. And what that demonstrates is that the the marketplace for global jobs is already being formed. Right, so global opportunity is being distributed to locals, um, but what is lacking is a coordination. Right, so all these things are happening independent of one another, and to get us to a stage where they can ramp up to a degree where the social impact uh, is happening at a velocity that represents. Um, rather at a velocity that is as great as or more so than our population growth, that's when um, we'll start to see real change, right? And, and so in our view, um, private cities 
effectively are coordinating entities. So if you're a city developer, you want to have good schools that put people into great jobs. You want to enable your artists and your creatives to uh, have access to capital that they can use to build out their product and then distribute these globally. Um, you know, and you want to foster a sense of community or asabia. Um, and um, that's, that's where we see our role, basically. Yeah, definitely. This is this is something very clear is that if you have a lot of uh, very uh, successful new cities, you're going to start to see people understanding how a functioning society could, uh, you know, could be could be amazing in a sense. And it could trigger really this uh, this virtuous cycle where people start to uh, to see some, some beautiful thing happening in the continent or in their country. And it can push them to, uh, you know, do do better thing themselves. So do you think that uh, charter cities could be the, the, the single element that could trigger this uh, virtuous cycle in, in Africa? Uh, I think charter cities are a component of it, um, but I also think there are other critical components. So in our estimation, there are a few critical legs to this uh, sort of thesis. One is new cities. So you need places where people can um, sort of like, comfortably live right because a lot of africa right now is just uncomfortable the power is you know unstable streets are full of traffic trash is everywhere uh, in some cities uh, and so that's not a place that a lot of people who have a lot of like you know globally relevant talent would want to live in so cities can new cities rather can solve for that um, the second bit is institutions which can act as market makers for for labor and for talent in general So places where, or institutions which can, A, provide the skills and training to people who have high, um, so like potential, and then B, places people into positions where they can earn um, from this craft by being placed into a job or being connected to distribution uh, partners um, or any sort of like commercial uh, infrastructure that would enable them to be successful. The, the third bit is you need a financial system that can oil the gears that make all those things happen faster and, and uh, with more people sort of like benefiting from them. The traditional financial system isn't ideal for that because the traditional financial system isn't as liquid as we need it to be in Africa. It's not as open as we need it to be in Africa, and it's not as frictionless as we need it to be in Africa. So there are a lot of gatekeepers. Um, there are a lot of there's a lot of like uh, sort of atomization. So you've got a capital market in Zambia, you've got a capital market in South Africa, you've got a capital market in Kenya. Um, when in reality, we probably just need one capital market for the entirety of Africa. We need one banking system for the entirety of Africa. We need. Uh, as much as possible to harmonize these things so that liquidity is constantly moving to the places and the people who can use it most productively. And so whilst a nation state might take issue with that and say, hey, uh, we want to be able to control our capital flows, a private network of cities which has its own financial system could act outside of that system, right? So. You could have a city in Kenya, you could have a city in Nigeria, a city in Morocco, a city in Algeria, and South Africa, and many others, uh, who all share this common infrastructure and benefit from it. 
And that's what we want to do. And we believe that blockchain is the most ideal medium for that because, number one, it is inherently global. So your investors won't just be Africans. There will be people living anywhere and everywhere in the world. And because they're living anywhere and everywhere in the world, you can basically leverage a lot more resources. Your investors also be your customers. And because they're living anywhere and everywhere in the world, it means your potential market for the sale of goods and services from the city network is everywhere and anywhere in the world. So let's explore a little bit more this because it sounds fascinating. But how do you see this um, rivalry basically between this new system and the established uh, financial system of each of these individual countries that will maybe have something to say about about uh, such a new financial system coming in their country? So the, the biggest issue is sandboxing, right? So it would have to be an open system on the one hand, but also... Uh, closed in some regards. So the closed elements would be things like only members of, the only people who could use, say, a, a stable coin that is um, used as, say, a unit of account or, uh, or payment um, would be members of the city network. So you leave the city, you can't use that. Um, so that you're not affecting the broader economy to a very like large or material extent. That's one. So you could establish parameters that prevent for um, harmful effects uh, in the host country. The second thing that you could do is actually partner with host countries. So in every single country you go to, you speak to a central bank, you speak to the finance ministry and say, hey, we have these private cities that are being developed here, would like a sandbox so that we can develop this technology in your country and people who live in the cities can use it. Um, the outcome is they get access to more jobs, they get access to more opportunities. And because capital inflows are a big issue for many African countries, access to jobs are a big issue for many African countries, our view is that most people will probably say yes, right? So what they'll, That's right. what they'll need is proof of concept. So they'll say, where has this worked, right? And what we want to do is demonstrate that with our first city to say it's worked in Zambia, it's worked here and because it's worked here you can believe with empirical evidence that it can work in your own country as well these are the number of jobs we've created this is the number of homes that's been built this is the number of um, entrepreneurs who've been supported um, and they've raised so many billions of dollars worth of financing off of this platform so when can we expecting this new technology to be uh, to be in place in uh, in zambia or is that already the case Uh, so we've started like groundwork for these things. So we've spent quite a bit of time you know, the last two years basically um, trying to understand what the local uh, authorities' view on crypto is. Uh, and what we, we've seen is uh, they're permissive. So the central bank hasn't banned it. Um, rather, what they've done is working with the Securities and Exchange Commission, they've created a sandbox that enables private developers to actually build these tools. So that's like a meaningful first step. The, the second thing that we're doing is we, we, we felt it was important to start building out a community before we start building out the tools. So last year, uh, we wrote the black paper, which basically is a concept note that at a very high level describes what we're trying to do. Um, and that came out of a conference called the Africa Renaissance Conference, which was basically talking about this idea of Afro-optimism across you know, different disciplines and 
Um, and we had people from the continent and off the continent talking about different subjects. And the idea there is building out a community of people who are uh, enthusiastic about Africa and want to see it positively change. Uh, then in December, we published Kilimanjaro, which built on the black paper, but gave a lot more granular details as to how we think this plays out um, with a lot of like attention given to institutions in particular. So what type of institutions would be embedded into this framework? The next step is to now have a much more detailed technical white paper, right, which goes into the details as to how this actually works from a sort of a cryptographic perspective, from a technological perspective, um, and how we would be rolling it out. So sometime during the course of uh, this year, we're hoping, you know, first half of this year, that particular paper will be issued. Uh, and then thereafter, the goal is to start implementation um, rather building uh, with the goal of launching the project formally like uh, you know first version um, sometime uh, either late this year or early next year um, and then just like continue to iterate and improve on this looking forward to uh, explore this project um, I started to to be super uh, interested in the uh, African um, entrepreneurship uh, scene And uh, I wanted to ask you, what are uh, right now the, the, the projects, uh, startups or entrepreneurs that you're uh, most excited about um, in Africa? Um, so I, I really think the likes of Yoko is exciting because they're building a product which has like potentially global application. So it's like a square, a, you know, it's a type of square type of product, which could in theory work anywhere. Um, and it's a really robust product. I've you know, used it several times. Uh, when I've been in South Africa, uh, and I love it. Um, so I, I think the team working on that is amazing. Um, and they're backed by some really solid investors. So I, I think they're uh, one such group. Um, I think the team at Flutterwave is another. Um, Paystack, obviously, uh, who were acquired by Stripe. Uh, Bycoins is another one. Uh, they're building out uh, sort of like a wallet and an exchange for crypto which is uh, you know, a really robust product and uh, they've got a great technical team there. And um, so you know, those type of companies are really exciting to us. Uh, a lot of the other companies that I personally find interesting aren't the ones which would typically have the most mind share of conversations, um, sort of like in African tech scene or, or even like globally. They're largely small bootstrapped uh, companies, uh, incidentally, most of them led by women. And they're typically working in things like art, furniture, fashion, uh, beauty and cosmetics, uh, media. There's a lot of like cool stuff happening at that level where people are building out these cash flow positive um, businesses which are like super commercially viable and are growing extremely rapidly. And the only thing that's missing with a lot of these type of businesses is that, the, you know, the founders are hyper-focused on the local market most times, uh, with a few exceptions who you know, look exclusively for the most part, uh, sort of like U.S. market. Um, but they don't have a lot of visibility and they don't have a lot of support. Um, this could be companies which could grow out to be the next... Um, you know, body shop as an example. Um, 
but they need support to to get to that stage. And so I'm really enthusiastic about guys like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, technology is is uh, is going to be very very important in the years to come. But uh, we shouldn't forget uh, businesses like like these that are not necessarily. 100% about tech, but uh, are nevertheless uh, delivering some uh, some essential services. In terms of uh, of, of countries, uh, I mean, Africa is uh, is huge. What are the countries that um, are kind of underrated in, in Africa and that you find uh, particularly interesting? Um, that's a good question. I mean, typically when people talk about Africa, the the, the names that you hear will be um, Egypt, Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, South Africa, when they're talking about tech in general. Um, and you also, but I've, I've found that there are a lot of Tunisian tech guys who are, you know, usually not spoken about, uh, Morocco. Uh, so, you know, I'm aware of a lot of like founders from there as well. Um, it doesn't get mentioned quite a lot. Um, I think in general, Francophone Africa doesn't get a lot of hype um, in sort of like Anglophone, uh, the Anglophone world. Um, and, and I think that's probably a problem. Um, yeah, I, I think that's how I'd characterize that. Um, I think the atomization of, of like, I guess, the, the continent or, or it's splitting into like regions like French speaking and so on and so forth um, prevents that flow of information from from being uh, more efficient than it could be. Okay, I'll, I'll rephrase. I wouldn't say underrated, but I'd say a, a country which has amazing potential, but maybe um, but maybe isn't like given the, the sort of like mind share it should be is, is South Africa, actually. Really? That's, that's pretty interesting because it's... Uh... It's often cited as one of the the most successful countries in in Africa. It is, and I think it gets like a, a ton of VC. Um, but a lot of the times, but let me rephrase. I think South Africa has the infrastructure to be way greater than its ecosystem currently is. So, if you look at its manufacturing sector as an example, right, you have BMW and Mercedes-Benz factories in South Africa, right? You have a nuclear power station in South Africa. Most of the continent's best universities are in South Africa. But for whatever reason, I find that South African uh, startups typically focus only on South Africa as a primary market when I think they've got the potential to be serving the entire world. Because a lot of them I see. Is actually already serve the entire world. So like the, um, South Africa's Ben factory produces um, the C-Class. And those C-Classes are sold globally, right? So if that's happening with Ben, why can't it happen with tech? 100%. I agree with you. Right now, there are a lot of people that are getting more and more interested in, in Africa. And what do you think are some good uh, books or movies that can educate people uh, on um, African culture? Um, I know that there are obviously a uh, you know, lot of uh, cultures within uh, Africa. But what are some, some, some good books that, that you could recommend? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. Um... Well, I mean, to be honest, I'm still reading quite a lot 
on on the space. So I, I don't think the list I'd be giving will be a, by any measure a an exhaustive one um, or even a good one. But some books that I would recommend are There Was a Country by Chinua Achebe. I think that's, that's a pretty good book. Um, I think The Long Walk to Freedom is a good book. It uh, gives perspective as to you know, South Africa, whereas Chinua Achebe's book gives perspective to Nigeria. Um, I've recently been reading a book on... Cartage, um, which basically is talking about uh, modern-day Tunis, um, doesn't really give much perspective rather than it's like it's historically cool. Um, Why Nations Fail is a good one, and I think it speaks to the importance of, of institutions. Um, I would highly recommend Why Nations Fail. For, for people that want to get involved in the, the future of, uh, of Africa, and I know that a lot of people right now are seeking very big projects because they want to do something very meaningful, what would you recommend for, for those people? I think one can come at this from a lot of different ways. So in a conversation I had with a friend recently, I, I was saying at all of the, conver- like the, the discussions people have, tend to focus around like really hard tech. So people be like, oh, how can we do machine learning in Africa and AI in Africa and all those things? And I think there's space for those things. Um, but I don't necessarily see that as our low-hanging fruits and the things which we're not, like arguably really good at, right? I, I think there's a lot of opportunity in things like fashion, in things like art, in culture, um, in things like food even. These are areas where the resources and the talent is already available. What is often lacking is the infrastructure to enable this this content or these products to be consumed globally. And that is the thing that other societies have become like really good at. And I, I, I like France as an example for this, right? So if you look at France's impact to global culture, it is far greater than the size of its population would suggest, right? So people wear LV globally. People wear Christian Dior or sprays, perfumes on themselves globally. People consume French wines globally, French cheeses globally. Like French cultural products are really well regarded. And companies like LVMH are global conglomerates, right? Um, so there, there's no problem, I think, going the France playbook versus the Silicon Valley playbook, as an example, right? And if anything, you could potentially operate at the intersection of those two things, where which is what a company like Inditex did, like Zara, right? On the one hand, it's selling fast fashion, it's taking the, the best trends, um, and then distributing this globally. Uh, and in a in a context which almost feels premium, but the core of its ability to do that is highly driven by tech, right? So it's 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 design process, it's tracking of tastes, it's um, fulfillment of orders online, um, and then distribution across the world. Technology enables a lot of that, and so I think that demonstrates that culture in and of itself is a huge opportunity that shouldn't be overlooked, especially because of what we've already seen happening in the world. 
So I mentioned Burner Boy at the beginning of this conversation. So Burner Boy has now become a global phenomenon. Um, you mentioned Wakanda earlier. Right? That was like a huge movie about Africa. And it was consumed globally. And it did well globally. So I, I think what that shows is that there's a lot of pent-up demand for African-related cultural products and services. Um, a lot of the biggest artists in the world are, you've got roots in Africa, like look at Kanye West. Uh, and, and so I, I think, um, I, I tend to believe that that is a, an easier path to scale than trying to compete against, um, you know, businesses which have invested hundreds of billions of dollars in things like machine learning and AI. That's very interesting. Actually, that's uh, quite a, a contrarian take, but I really like it. I think uh, there is some truth to, uh, to what you're saying. And that may be the, the low-hanging fruit that uh, Africa needs. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 you know, it's a contrarian take indeed. Um, but I, I think the proof is in the pudding. You know, if things are already happening, it suggests that it's not as contrarian as we think. Um, it's, it's just that I, I found that Folks like yourself, myself, um, you know, we, we tend to live in this bubble where we are operating at the speed of, of thought um, and, and sort of like theme or, or, or zeitgeist of Silicon Valley and the rest of like, I guess, the world, um, like the technologically advanced world. But the reality on the ground for ordinary people, even in the US, in Europe and in Africa is often very different to our perspective. Um, and that's why you get situations like Bernard Arnault being the third richest person in the world, or is it fourth richest, you know? Um, it's because he's, he's producing so like old world, old world products that people still highly regard. That's a very, very interesting idea to, uh, to close this conversation on. And uh, that's for sure something that I will have to, uh, to meditate on. Well, Mia, thank you so much for taking the time to come on The Long Game. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Hey again, it's Mehdi. Before you leave, I want to tell you about what we're building at Lifetizer. When it comes to health, Lifetizer believes in prevention and optimization. There's no reason to guess what works for you anymore when you can read the messages your body tries to tell you. At Lifetizer, we help people optimize their blood glucose levels through nutrition and exercise to improve how you feel, how you sleep, to get better health and optimize your longevity. Check it out at lifetizer.io and sign up for early access to the private beta. That's all for today, friends, and thank you so much for listening.